0: Hi, um, my name is Amanda Groves, and I live in Benton, Kentucky. I depend upon the ACA because right now I'm not a full-time employee. I work part-time. I'm a substitute in the schools, and I'm also a student in seminary pursuing a second career, which I am very excited about. So it is because of ACA that I have the freedom to pursuing my dream, do something different, and look out for my family. My husband has health issues, he can't drive, and he has several medical appointments, so it would be very hard for me to work a full-time job. So it has been very beneficial to me. Um, I get supplements from the government, I'm not on Medicaid, but um, I do get some help from the government, but I still have a pretty pretty high premium, pretty high deductibles, and so I still have me- medical bills so that this there it is not a free ride and so single payer would be the best answer for everyone involved um even though I have insurance I have really bad knee issues they need to be replaced but I can't, I, I can't do it because I I do not have the funds Uh, saved up to do something like that, to commit myself to something like that. So single-payer would allow me to live my life to the fullest.
1: Welcome to another episode of Single-Payer Radio. We broadcast our program from the historic Hayburn Building here in downtown Louisville. This show is a project of Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare And we're an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Our current, broken, fragmented care system costs twice as much as in other developed countries and delivers worse outcomes. Tens of thousands of Americans die unnecessarily each year because they can't access care. Over 100 million Americans carry medical debt Bankrupting thousands and setting families up for eviction, foreclosures, food insecurity, and more bad health outcomes. That's why we advocate for a national, publicly funded, nonprofit, single payer system. Everybody in, nobody out. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. And just a reminder, single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 106.5 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. WFMP is an all-volunteer station We rely on the community for your ideas and our funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. Doctors Mike Flynn and Gene Shively are back in the studio, zooming in today's guest. Mike?
2: Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments I make represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. We have two special guests today, uh, pediatric surgeons, to help us discuss issues of children's health, access to care, trauma, and gun violence. Uh, uh, Cynthia Downard and David Foley are both professors at the Department of Surgery at the University of North Louisville. Uh, Cindy is the director of the Division Pediatric Surgery. She's the Surgeon-in-Chief at Norton Children's Hospital Got her uh, medical degree at Vanderbilt, uh, did a general surgery residency at the Oregon Health Sciences uh, University, and did a fellowship uh, in pediatric surgery at Emory University, and a surgical critical care uh, fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, David, his medical degree at the State University of New York at Buffalo, uh, general surgery residency at Wake Forest in fellowships at the University of Michigan, was a Bradshaw Research Fellow at Wake Forest, and, a, and a, another a resident of a fellowship at the Children's Hospital in Oklahoma City. Uh, Cindy and David, we are grateful that you are both here. We're looking forward to, uh, to uh, an interesting conversation. Uh, as we have done with uh, our guests in the past, we're going to give you both an opportunity to uh, make whatever comments you'd like to make for as long as you'd like to make them. And then Gene will begin with the first question. So Cindy, ladies first, we'll let you go first and you just make whatever comments you like and then we'll follow up with David and, and the conversation will begin.
3: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Flynn. Um, I need to make the same disclaimer that uh, the views are my own, um, and I assume Dr. Foley's as well, that we don't formally represent the University of Louisville in this capacity, or Norton Healthcare. Um, That said, I am the Surgeon-in-Chief of Norton Children's Hospital and have been in that position for the last two years. Um, It's been a time of unprecedented change in healthcare, of course, with the COVID pandemic, and then uh, what we are seeing currently at our Children's Hospital, and this has been on the national news over the course of this fall, and I'm certain we'll continue this winter, is what is being called a tridemic of COVID, RSV, and flu all hitting at the same time. And right now, it, it's really presenting major challenges in pediatric healthcare, care, not just from a surgical standpoint, but overall. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Foley.
4: Okay, thanks, Cindy. Uh, Also happy to be here. My opinions are my own also uh, only. Um, I've been the trauma medical director here since 2006. I've been here for almost 20 years overall. Um, And, you know, we dedicate ourselves to the care of children, and we are surgeons. And so some of what we do is doesn't represent the overall uh, milieu of things that happen to children that are healthcare risks, but um, certainly those things Cindy mentioned are extremely important. Um, we have, uh, and, and, and I would also add that when you have hospitals that are suffering from issues like what she just brought up, it creates a log jam in terms of healthcare within the facility that affects every child with every problem that comes into the hospital uh, to be cared for. Um, We have a lot of challenges. Um, Certainly, the COVID pandemic has been a dramatic example of that. Um, Also, during that same period of time, we have seen a fairly dramatic increase in the number of firearm injuries in younger children, fatalities, horrible stories, the kind of things that allow people to have to go into treatment for PTSD Uh, both the patients, if they survive, their family members, and the healthcare providers that have cared for them, are at risk for those things, Um, and it's a huge public health problem—not just here in Louisville, but also throughout the country. Um, And so, hopefully, we'll talk some about that as well.
5: Uh, Gene, you want to begin? I'm Eugene Sharpley from Campbellsville, Kentucky, and what I say on the program about is mine and doesn't represent any racial hospital to Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. Uh, I'd like to start off, David, by letting you talk a little bit about the trauma program at uh, uh, Children's Hospital and how that's changed and how it's affected uh, uh, Louisville and uh, what y'all have done. I know that Mary Fallon's recently uh, written a paper on uh, evaluation of uh, trauma centers in the
4: united states yeah sure so uh, our hospital has functioned as a de facto level one trauma center for children ever since i've been here starting with the efforts of dr fallett in sort of the late 80s and early 90s after she came back here from her training and shortly after that time had to take care of all of the children that were involved in the Carrollton bus crash. I think that sort of stimulated her professional interest that then led to the rest of her career. Um, we have been verified. It's difficult to become verified as a freestanding children's hospital because of the inability to, inability to use utilize the adult trauma system or trauma team to help out. We have been able to be verified since 2010. um, Now, so 12 years running, and and truthfully, our catchment and the types of patients we haven't that we take care of has always really been the same, and it's pretty much the western part of Kentucky, the southern part of Indiana, down into northern Tennessee. we are one of two level one trauma centers in the state, the other one being the children's hospital associated with the uh, University of Kentucky, which is a combined adult pediatric program. I think that that those are all places that, de- that deliver really good individual care when the patient shows up to the hospital. But what you're referring to when you discuss some of Mary's work is is the system of the state. to. So, how do you get those patients to the hospital? How do you get the right ones to the children's hospital? How do you keep the ones that don't need to go there in the right place so that the children's hospital doesn't get overwhelmed? And how does that? How do these hospitals way out in the state that are trying to deal with these patients, take care of them, and how does that system work efficiently? In order for that to happen, you have to have a trauma system for the state. And in order for a trauma system to exist, you have to have legislation from the state that backs that trauma system We've had that now for over a decade, largely thanks to Dr. Fallett's efforts. We have a trauma advisory committee that has pediatric representation that meets monthly um, with representatives across the state. And several years ago, we undertook what's, what's called a pediatric preparedness evaluation, which was a na- which was a nationwide um, effort, but in the state of Kentucky to look. At all of the hospitals in the state and how well they were prepared to take care of children, uh, and that deals with things like equipment availability, level of training of the individuals, nursing staff, level of comfort, etc. And as a as a result of that survey that was done, um, improvements have been made to those to, to hospitals that were lacking in some of those areas. Um, we have. A pretty well established system now of level two, three, and four state verified trauma centers throughout the state that sort of helped that triage um, pattern to occur more efficiently. And I think that's been sort of the big thrust over about the last decade. The article that you're referring to is a study done looking at pediatric preparedness, pediatric trauma systems in the country and evaluating them based on six parameters. Some of the more important parameters included included the the ability of the state to have a legislated and funded trauma system that had pediatric representation, as well as the level of pediatric preparedness uh, in the various hospitals in the state, and a dedication to process improvement by that state trauma advisory committee. Those are sort of three of the big ones as well as an evaluation process that is dependent on the state trauma registry. And interestingly, although oftentimes we wind up grading out lower than other states in the country for things, Kentucky did very well uh, based on that evaluation and wound up actually with the third highest score in the country, only behind Maryland and Delaware. And they were actually able to show that for every one point increase in your score, there was a measurable reduction in mortality. Um, which is a fairly broad, gross way of evaluating it, but they're undertaking more uh, outcome-based measures to evaluate it further. Um, And so I think our state has actually positioned itself fairly well over the last 10 to 20 years in terms of taking care of trauma overall, but also taking care of pediatric trauma.
2: Well, I'd like to get into gun violence and some trauma a bit later on, but uh, Cindy, maybe we could we could spend a little time on pediatric access to care. Now, the first part of this question, I'm not sure if it's totally fair and if, if it's not something you're comfortable with, let me know. But I, I am wondering if you had a sense of pediatric access to care, Louisville versus Nashville or, or St. Louis or some of the surrounding towns. And then the second part of that is that if you could give us a sense of the insurance status or the medicaid issues related to different parts of louis
3: sure so um with regard to the access to health care right now um is a difficult time to answer that for the reasons that i stated before in in general um i don't have data on pediatric access to care overall differentiating cities but right now the challenges that I mentioned before with regard to current infectious disease issues and hospital systems, that is nationwide. Um, And actually, interestingly, so a couple years ago when the operating rooms nationally were limited by largely state legislators, um, not knowing what the COVID pandemic was going to look like and and elective operations were halted nearly universally nationally, um, the uh, uh, ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Med- Graduate Medical Education, decreased um, operative case number requirements for surgical-based residencies and for case-based residencies, <clears throat> knowing that there were some challenges in getting uh, patients into the operating room when you legally were not allowed to do so on an elective basis. Uh, interestingly, the ACGME has come back to pediatric hospitals specifically to pediatric surgery fellowships and to um, pediatric residencies looking if at if they need to implement those same sort of case requirement reductions because of our current um current pandemic situation as I as I mentioned with the flu and RSV and um, in addition to covid so so those those challenges are present nationally I'm hearing from my colleagues in pediatric surgery that um some, institutions have had to limit the number of so-called elective procedures. And, you know, I just had a a parent yesterday say elective, like, you know, it's not like he's getting a nip here and tuck there. I said, no, I mean, elective, like you can actually put it on the schedule. So I, I think that's um, an important differentiation for the general public that maybe physicians kind of understand a little bit differently, but so as far as scheduled procedures, um, that those are being limited at some pediatric hospitals, and that's that's a national issue. Um, with regard to um, payment systems in the Kentucky um, population, our um, general population in Louisville as far as uh, Norton Children's Hospital, we're about 63% Medicaid, about 32% private health insurance, and then... Five percent with no health insurance or self-pay. So um, that's our current mix. That does vary a little bit by um, the distribution of the city, but, but that's sort of an overall mix. Um,
2: so. Now, what was the impact of the expansion of, 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 of Medicaid under the first governor, Bashir, Bashir, in terms of access to care?
3: yeah i don't I don't have the specifics on that, but um, my sense is that it definitely expanded the access for reimbursed care that that we saw, but I don't have the specific numbers.
5: Uh, so. We know that for most hospitals, Medicaid only pays about eighty uh, percent of the cost uh, depending on how you figure costs. How does that affect uh, children's hospital and and how do you make up for, for the difference since you have such a High
3: level of Medicaid patients. Yeah, it's it's interesting you ask that. That's been um our our payer mix for as long as I can remember. Um, and I don't know that um that that has changed significantly with employment status changes and such over the last couple of years with COVID. Um, it's interesting you ask that though because just yesterday I got an email from the American Academy of Pediatrics advocating for uh bringing <clears throat> Medicaid payments up to Medicare standards. So uh, Medicaid is even more poorly reimbursed <laughs> than, than Medicare. So um, so I do think we have a lot of opportunities to look at how we best uh, take care of our children. Now, there have been national efforts um, as far as the Children's Health Insurance Program and CHIP funding and things like that, that uh, you know, I think it's, it's pretty universal nationally that people want children taken care of. They're our future of our country. Um, however, getting that paid for is always um, a hot discussion.
2: Well David let's uh let's move into trauma and gun violence something that I I have some real issues about but I have a daughter who is a school teacher in New York and she tells me that the issues that they have to go through with with preparing for the possibility of a shooting where the students mm-hmm. have to either crawl under their desks or pile all the furniture against the door is just uh, you know, it's, got, it's a serious issue. Uh, yep. So I wonder, before we get into some more specifics about gun violence, what what are your maybe both of you can re- respond to this? Your thoughts about uh, you know, the impact of of those kind of activities in grammar school? I mean, I went; no. I never had to deal with anything close to that when I was out no, and I've been around as long as Methuselah.
4: Well, <laughs> I so that's a a good way to start this talk talking about this i think um it's it's very interesting to see and this has happened through the course of my life too i didn't have any worries like that either growing up uh never even occurred to me that something like that could happen um and it's out of control and this country is worse than any other country in the world if you look at the statistics um gun violence Gun violence in children, if you take all patients under the age of 18, everybody sees now on the news the mass shootings, the things that happened in grammar school, multiple children killed, we've had them, you know, with increasing frequency over the last several years particularly, and it creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of emotion on the part of the public. And these are really, really bad things. But they are the result, I think, of a more fundamental underlying problem. And that is that we have universal access to guns, no matter what our background is. We have increasing mental health issues. And we have a very, very low overall level of education regarding firearm safety relative to the amount of guns that are out there. And if you look at If you look at the national data, just with respect to children, the numbers are increasing. And if you take all people under the age of 18, it has now become the single leading cause of death. For the first time in March of this year, the data now suggests that firearm injury is is the leading cause of death in people under the age of 18, surpassing motor vehicle accidents, which had been the cause forever prior to that. If you look Uh, at
2: no and David, I saw it interrupt. This is this is the result of school shootings.
4: No, not just school shootings, just overall. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm just saying I'm just saying that the school shooting increase, I think, although that's what everyone sees and everybody gets emotionally charged up about, it is it is basically one element of an of, of a more of a larger problem.
5: David, right. you're it's, not just talking about leading causes of trauma death. You're talking about all pediatric deaths. All
4: pediatric deaths. Wow. All pediatric deaths. As of as of March or April of this year. Um, wow. And so, so yes, I mean, I I do think the school shooting stuff is is a dramatic example of this, but it's not. It's by far, in a way, not the only. Issue related to firearm violence, and in fact, if you think about the number of children that are killed in mass shootings, and you real and you now realize that firearm injuries are the leading cause of death in children in this country, the vast, vast, vast majority of those firearm injuries are not from school shootings; they're from other causes, you know, other incidents. Um, and so, it's it's a huge problem that involves that involves school shootings as part of it, but is not certainly. Certainly a larger problem than just that. I, I guess I meant what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say what Mike's saying, it's it's even worse than you might think just by by looking at the news. Essentially, now, I,
2: I I went to a grand rounds and this was probably five, six, maybe seven years ago. And I can't remember if it was Keith Miller or or Matt Benz. And one of the one of the uh, one of the things I took away from it. Was the recognition that, that 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 in the West End of Louisville, uh, the most gun uh, violence was young black men, or deaths or and violence shooting each other, and East End of Louisville, it's old white men killing themselves. So I, I you know there's a major issue with with young people in some parts of yeah. not just this city other cities. Who, who have access to guns do you have any idea is there a sense of where 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 they're getting them
4: uh I don't know the answer to that but one <laughs> one for certain but I would say that that one of the issues is that it is very easy to get at, to to purchase a gun legally in this state we talked about this I think a little before we started you know you you can be not of age to drink alcohol. You could be not, you could barely be of age to drive. And yet you can walk into a store and buy a semi-automatic weapon. (laughs) Right. It's so, so we have very, very non-restrictive laws in this state. And that's, you know, that's one issue, but I, but I think it's not the only one. Um, I think, I think it is, There's no question that, depending on what part of the city you live in, the tendency is going to vary in terms of how these injuries are occurring. And there's no question that there is a predilection for these injuries to occur overall in children in the Black population when you consider the difference in population overall. But if you look at the patients that we see in our hospital, more than half of them are white. And... They don't all come from the inner city. They don't all come from the west end of Louisville. A lot of them come from rural communities. If you look at zip codes, the mechanisms are different, but it is a ubiquitous problem. It does not just affect the inner city kids, it affects everybody. If you have a teenager on the east end of Louisville committing suicide, which happens for sure, if you have gang violence on the west end of Louisville, which happens for sure, if you have a hunting accident out in the rural community, you have kids picking up guns in their in their parents' house out in the middle of the country and shooting themselves in the brain, coming in basically dead. Um it's everywhere. It's everywhere, and it's not and it and it defies characterization by race, socioeconomic economic status, location in the city. It's a huge problem.
5: Well, what are the social problems behind the um uh, uh gunshot wounds, uh Out in a rural community, is it
4: usually hunting or other things? Uh, It's typically either hunting or somebody picking up one of their parents' guns in the house, typically young children, and discharging the gun unintentionally into either themselves or a sibling. And, you know, those things, and this is good, it's good to talk about this this way, because if you think about I, one of the take-home points of most of my talks about this is that when when you look at what we see in children's hospital, most of these kids either come in with minor injuries or they come in with a fatal injury. There's very little in between. Over eighty-five percent of the patients that we lose as a result of firearm injury in the children's hospital are brain injuries or headshots, where when they show up at the hospital they're still alive, but everybody that's taking care of them knows. That they're going to die, and the and and my point about that is that if you start looking into prevention mechanisms and what can we do to help this situation, it's incredibly multifactorial. If you live in Keith Miller's world down the street, gun buyback programs, mental health, better mental health, better access to mental health, trying to fix some economic. Inequalities that exist in the communities that lead to some of this stuff that lead to some of the gang violence. If you live in my world. It's really about education. It's really about educating people how to how to take care of guns safely, particularly in their own house. And so in sort of when you try to sit back and look at how to tackle this, there is no one answer to that question. there's only there's a billion answers to that question and unfortunately it's hard to enact any of them
2: yeah i was i was uh, uh watching television a night or two ago and there are two uh, mayoral candidates on discussing this issue and i'm not going to mention names and you don't have to even respond to this if you don't want one mayoral candidate made the observation that guns are not the problem which is, this is one of those, at least in my opinion, brain-dead belief systems. The other mayoral candidate indicated that um, the state of Kentucky has this, uh, has this, um, I guess it's policy, where a gun which is confiscated is then sent to the state police, and then the state police auction it off. Right. And that other mayoral candidate said, well, we're going to do this, but not until we have made the gun dysfunction. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, I don't know, this. some of these belief systems around the access to gun, I don't know if you ever read the Second Amendment. It only has two lines. And the first four words are a well-regulated militia.
4: Right not exactly describing the situation we have in our communities today. Oh, no. <laughs> absolutely,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
4: Well-regulated yeah. militia. Yeah. 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 It also was written during a time when people settled arguments by going out in the backyard and loading handcrafted bullets into muskets, right? It's a very, very different situation than someone with an AK-47 out on the street.
2: Yes, absolutely. The AK-47 which is basically an M16 without the, without the automatic component. I spent years with a hundred years ago and I was a resident, I spent some time in a Vietnamese civilian hospital and the high muscle, muscle, muscle velocity combined with the tumble, the bullet goes into the tissue, makes a little hole and then there's this huge expansion as a yeah. tremendous amount of tissue damage. It's
5: insane, uh, David. Uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about the burn unit at Children's Hospital? I know it's the only uh, uh, pediatric burn unit in the state of Kentucky.
4: Yeah, so we have a uh, we have a dedicated burn team. Um, it's been a bit of a and and we do have a burn unit. It's been a bit of a challenge to keep. Um, it was it was started by a plastic surgeon here a long time ago who retired right after I came. Um, I took it over based on you know just being the trauma medical director. Um, we had a group of nurses that had been around for a long time. were very comfortable providing burn care. Um, it it really wasn't a set physical unit as much as it was a sort of a corner of the hospital that we tended to place burn patients into and had them cared for by this certain set of nurses. And um, it's still functional and we still take care of a lot of burns here. Um, Some of the more severely injured, you know, burns when you get up over 60, 70% total body surface area burns, a lot of those kids after their original, after their initial resuscitation wind up going to Shriners Hospital, which used to be in Cincinnati, um, because the care is free. It's all supplemented. Um, And we're fine with that, but my point has always been we need to be able to take care of them here and we need to be able to provide the initial critical resuscitation here. Um, Having said that, one of our challenges from a burn unit standpoint has been to continue to keep Interested, educated nurses working on these patients in the war on the wards because of the nursing turnover has been so high, and so a lot of these older nurses who were so experienced with taking care of these burn wounds have retired, and sometimes it's challenging to find good young ones who would like to con- would like to take up the mantle and learn. Um, we do it, but then the turnover is so fast that you wind up not having these same really really reliable people that you used to have. Um, I would say we. I mean, we see we see a bunch of burns, um, all you know, all ages up to age eighteen. Uh, we do a reasonable amount of burn surgery, uh, and our ICU is is helpful in helping us to take care of some of the more critically injured ones, particularly the ones with inhalational injury. Uh,
2: Cindy, um, let's move, change the focus just a little bit. Oh, what What has the effect of the collapse of Kentucky 1 and the expansion of U Healthcare, health care, which uh, at least in my opinion, by all accounts has been a remarkably successful activity? How has that affected your Children's Hospital, the Norton Children's Hospital? is, that, is it positive negative or, or no no or, or neutral?
3: I I don't know the um, direct financial implications of that. I know that from a day-to-day patient care standpoint, the primary interaction that we have with the UofL Health Entity is with our rehab hospital, Fraser Rehab, right next door, which is an incredible resource for our community and for our children's hospital, as uh, Dr. Foley has alluded to with our trauma program. Uh, the partnership having a a rehab hospital that is outfitted for outstanding patient care for children is just an amazing resource. I mean, I did my fellowship in Atlanta, a city of 5 million people, and we had to send our pediatric patients to another city in order for them to get rehab care. So really having that physically next door to us is is invaluable. Uh, Right about that same time that UofL Health was developed, uh, the pediatric entity, uh, mostly the Department of Pediatrics, pediatric specialties, and then we were on the fringe of that um, being in the Department of Surgery, um, formed a formal partnership with Norton Healthcare, and so for clinical employment with um, with Norton Healthcare, and I think that that has really solidified the relationship between the University of Louisville um, pediatric-focused phys- physicians and Norton Healthcare, which makes sense because Norton Healthcare owns the physical Children's Hospital, and having a, a solid partnership with those who staff that Children's Hospital just seems to be um, makes sense.
2: Yeah, so. can you uh, give us a little a sense of the how uh, the interaction between the, the, you all and your position at Norton Children's Hospital, uh, and then and your then you've got your university uh, position. And then you've got your, react, your your interaction with the 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 private uh, pediatric community in general. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense of how you balance those? These are three not necessarily competing, but they're three somewhat different
3: uh, focuses. Sure. So specific to pediatric surgery, we have all. Always been uh, both university faculty from an academic standpoint, where we're uh, members of the faculty of the um, Department of Surgery in the School of Medicine. And then, you know, I've been here for 15 years. We, there were, I think, 32 private practices that made up the faculty of the University of School of Medicine at the time. Uh, we were then part of the integration into the faculty practice plan. And then this is the latest iteration. So it's not unusual for us to um, have a different clinical uh, clinical function as far as billing and coding and things like that and getting a paycheck for our clinical services as opposed to our academic um, affiliation with the university. So that's been sort of um, there the whole time. And that's, that's not unusual for academic medical centers in general. Um, with regard to community physicians, we try to be available for everyone we don't care whether you're employed by uh private practice norton it does it doesn't matter to us we want to be there for the children and to take care of children who have surgical issues and so we don't really differentiate um at all as far as you know access to care or anything like that now I, i do have to say that part of our integration into norton um and this is this we just had a grand rounds talk this morning on burnout and um, resilience and such. A big part of that discussion was electronic medical record access and use of the electronic medical record. Having one electronic medical record across the inpatient and outpatient venues has been life-changing because you see a patient in the office and then they show up for surgery and you have actually the notes that you wrote in the office immediately available to you. And so that's been super helpful. Um, more and more, there are um norton uh employed pediatricians in the city and so having access to that care i'm hearing on the on the outpatient side is helpful as well but at the same time we want to make that information available to uh to pediatricians who are in private practice or employed by other entities too and so that those all that always presents challenges and communication is at the bottom of of you know a lot of um of optimization of care and making sure that we have good communication, bi-directional communication with referring physicians and with uh, folks at the hospital is is key.
5: How is COSAR uh, related to Children's Hospital? What's their function now?
3: So uh, my understanding is that COSAR Charities, I know does still provide a significant amount of funding, mostly through the University of Louisville for pediatric focused um efforts, whether it be research or education and such, but, um, but not so much through the Norton hospital, the Norton healthcare mechanism. And I'm, I'm not sure of the specifics on that
2: though. Uh, uh, let me ask both of you a uh, kind of a, a similar, but, but different question. I, I retired about four years ago. Uh, one of the things I noticed in the last decade or so of my surgical practice, uh, you know, on the faculty was, uh, As as these different hospital groups and healthcare systems uh, consolidated, there tended to be a uh, uh, sort of influence or uh, enthusiasm to refer within the system, so that uh, people who have in one system the Baptist system or the ones across the river would, and I I would see, I would see. uh referrals dry up and then they come back again when patients were referred to uh, someone who maybe didn't have quite so much experience dealing with some of these issues uh it, 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 it is is that an issue at all with with the the pediatric you know surgery the, with some of the other healthcare care uh, systems in and around louisville uh, hey, we're really,
3: oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dr. No, no,
2: go ahead, Cindy, you
4: go well,
3: ahead. I was, was going to say-, say we would like to
2: hear from both of you about
3: that. We're really the only pediatric surgeons in town and we just try to keep the care of the children at the center focus. And so I don't notice a lot of, um, as I said, dif- differentiation as far as access and such. The communication um, format might be a little bit different, whether it goes straight through the me- medical record versus a faxed um, letter back or something like that. But the keeping the patient care at the center that um, has been. I, I don't see a whole lot of difference. Doctor Foley may have different thoughts on
4: you know, that. I think it's because there aren't any other options, right? You know, if if, uh, if somebody in the if there were a bunch of pediatric surgeons over at Baptist, then we would be in that situation almost certainly. But because there aren't, we 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 tend to avoid that. However, I will say this: before the babies are born, many of them are taken care of in the Baptist system. And we have seen obstetricians from the Baptist system referring prenatal consults to Cincinnati so as not to send them to Norton that has happened. And so that, you know, like a baby with a uh, congenital uh, lung cyst or a congenital diaphragmatic hernia or something noticed on prenatal ultrasound, rather than coming here where we are more than capable of taking care of them, they get referred to Cincinnati. Um, now, I don't think that happens a tremendous amount, but I do think it is partially related to the competition between the two groups, for sure.
2: I don't think there's any question about that. And that was something I noticed in my, as I said, in my last 10 years. Of
4: practice. Um, the other thing I would say about the private pediatricians and versus like the Norton-employed pediatricians, that this, that has really undergone sort of a revolution in the hospital, in that the vast majority of patients almost 100% now, if they come into the hospital, are cared for by hospitalists that are employed by Norton and our university faculty, not by their private pediatricians. And when I first started here, it was probably only about 30% and the other 70% were cared The you know, the pediatricians would come in and round on their own patients so one of the one of the things that we do have to fight now from a, is is the communication end of it. Like Cindy mentioned, where you can be caring for a child that's very sick, and while you're in the hospital, all the communication is going back and forth with the hospitalist, and as soon as they're discharged, it's the pediatrician's patient again, and we have to be mindful of that in a way that we didn't used to.
5: Um, speaking of burnout, <clears throat> that seems to be a very hot issue
0: about medical
5: care today, particularly doctors and nurses. But uh, nobody seems to be taking care of one of the leading problems, which almost everybody mentions, uh, the computerized uh, medical record. Has there been any progress in the making uh, the, the time, the amount spent on electronic medical record and, and the uh, complicated medical records easier so that uh Very highly trained pediatric surgeons don't have to waste so much time.
3: Um, As far as specifics of throughput of of medical records, um, I think it's an interesting phenomenon overall that, you know, there are tips and tricks that you can use to get through office notes faster and pre-populating and smart phrases and, you know, Cerner and Epic and one's better than the other. I think that the real underlying issue, though, is that more and more has been pushed to the physicians. And this actually was discussed in Grand Rounds this morning, too. You know, back 25, uh, 30 years ago when I was starting in residency, you would go through, write the notes, you know, collect the um, vital signs on a patient, write the notes, put the orders in, and then anything else was... um, Communicated by phone with the nurse on the floor or or the um, pharmacist. But when, with the advent of electronic medical records, when it's pushed to the physician that Um, you know, I'm putting the primary care physician in as far as who the um, referring note needs to go back to in the office. And I have to put all the orders in for, um, for surgery and for whatever tests they need, you know, whereas previously it was just a a quick jot down that, that all adds up. And yes, it's one minute here and one minute there, but that all adds up over the course of the day. So I think that um, going forward, the more that that shifts, Away from the physician on the on the day to day, and I think that that's coming um, in the not so distant future. I think that that's going to help a lot with the physician burnout anyway. So,
5: yeah, when you make rounds, do the nurses make rounds with you like they used to? Sometimes, (laughs)
3: Sometimes. if you're if you're intentional, I think you know. And uh, we have these new devices called Bosera too. I'm not sh- sure if, if y'all are familiar with those, but it's basically replaced the, um, the phones that the um, nursing and in um, physicians have these two, the phones that they would carry around the hospital. So it's a device that sits on your chest and you, um, it, you just clip it to your scrubs and you talk to it. And it's supposed to directly voice page um, another person. It's, um. A lot of times the idea is that you can directly find that person and have a direct discussion with them. And so facilitate communication. I'd say nine times out of 10, if I try to um, if I try to use it, you know, and I'm looking for the nurse for the patient in room. 555 I end up yelling into the phone I just need to talk to the nurse in room 555 and I can't get a hold of an actual human being so um so I think there are all kinds of devices and efforts um designed to improve that communication but but the discussions that happen at the bedside now I have to say that the pediatric teams the general pediatric teams are very good at making um team rounds with a whole slew of medical students residents attending um nurses but, you know, in a, in a surgical practice where you're running down in between cases to see three or four of the, um, you know, 10 or so patients you have in the hospital, it's hard to coordinate that sometimes. But um, but having those discussions at the bedside, I agree, is, is valuable.
2: Well, let, let's uh, shift focus uh, a little bit. I'm going to ask both of you to comment on this kind of long, rambling sort of question. Number one uh, is is child abuse. And uh, let me go through this and then you all can pick out what parts you want to talk about. Is this increasing, decreasing or stable uh, in Kentucky, Louisville? Then, you know, the causative factors, poverty, mental health, uh, mental illness, drugs, family situation, location, rural, urban, suburban. I mean, that's a a lot of stuff. and I'm not sure how how much direct contact as pediatric surgeons you have with that, but I, I we'd like to hear both of your views about about those issues.
4: I think if you're talking about incidents, there are a couple of things you have to you have to separate out shaken baby syndrome. <laughs> from other forms of abuse in older children like burns and physical abuse in older children um and then you also have to consider the the what the real incidence of child abuse is given has been over the last few years given the covid pandemic so there definitely has been an increase there was definitely an increase that we have seen both nationwide and in the city of louisville in child maltreatment um since 2020. And that makes some degree of sense, right? People weren't going to work, they were all cooped up in their house, they weren't going anywhere, there was a lot more mental health difficulty. Um, And, and we have seen that increase. Um, And it is, there is a predilection for sort of lower socioeconomic areas in terms of where it comes from. But again, just like gun violence, it's not, I think it's a mistake to focus on that because it happens um, on the east end of Louisville as well. Um, I would say that our hospital has been very active in terms of maltreatment prevention programs. Um, we had a, a PICU nurse who was a data hound that um, took an interest in this, and uh, particularly in shaken baby, which is the, the most, probably the most devastating form of abuse. Um, and that we see in children and developed an educational video for parents because one of the things she noticed was that when these events happened and the children came in and they had a devastating neurologic injury, very, very frequently the perpetrator was a parent and very, very frequently the perpetrator was devastated, devastated about the injury that they had caused after the fact. And so she realized that a lot of that was education-related and people not understanding the damage they can do in a brief moment when they get upset about something and try to shake that baby so that it will stop crying. So she developed a a video that became, and she actually got um, uh, legislation to support the use of this educational video for all patients in the Norton system, all newborns, just like car seat training before the people were sent home from the hospital. Um, and she was able to demonstrate a decrease in incidence of shaken baby syndia- syndrome over a several year period of time following the implementation of that video. Now, obviously it's limited to the fact that it was only being done in Norton hospitals, uh, but it but it's a, it's a sort of a demonstration of sort of the impact of that and the fact that, that, um, that you can make a difference um, by, you know, through education. But overall, we have definitely seen an increase in the overall amount of child maltreatment since the COVID pandemic started.
3: I think I think that um, adds to, when you talk about healthcare uh, worker burnout, we've had more than one surgical resident who, um, and this goes back to Dr. Foley's prior comment about PTSD too, you know, you see a child come into the emergency department, not necessarily who shot themselves, but who were, um, abused by a family member. And, um, you know, that's something that's really difficult to deal with and more than one resident has had to be, um, referred to counseling and you know it's not unusual to have a debrief in the emergency department when you have a child who has come in in this situation and they either die in the emergency department or make it to the PICU and, and don't do well so it's it takes a lot to take care of those patients. Now Does well,
2: what happens um, if you have a, a, a case of of child abuse, I guess whether this is in the emergency room or wherever, it, what's is there a? There's a, I'm assuming there's some kind of reporting process that you have yeah. to you, you go through, so yeah, it just doesn't just go away or just become a medical issue.
4: No, it's interesting. So, so these are all uh, you're sort of legally required as a healthcare provider to file a, C, a child protective services report when you have any suspicion of any injury being non-accidental. Um, once that happens, there's an evaluate, a social services evaluation that occurs while the patient is in the hospital. And the patient, regardless of how severe their injuries are, cannot go home from the hospital until that evaluation is completed, whether, that, whether that's completed in the emergency department or subsequently with a patient in the hospital. We have lots of minor trauma patients Who are admitted to the hospital only because of the suspicion for maltreatment and not because their injuries require that. Now, the other thing that we have um, is a really, really, really good university-based forensic service. So Melissa Curry and her department are extremely well-trained forensics pediatricians, essentially, that will depending on the initial evaluation and the the, the degree of severity of the injury, will come and evaluate a patient, do a complete physical evaluation, do whatever imaging studies are, you know, skeletal survey, ophthalmo- ophthalmologic exam, CTs when they're necessary to kind of get a true sense of, to get a very defined sense of whether there's been maltreatment. And they will issue recommendations for the, the living arrangement based on that evaluation. Um, Most of the time, it's very interesting. For things other than firearm injury, this works really well. And I think we have a good way to keep kids safe, but it is very difficult to take children out of the home um, away from the biological parents. If the injury is demonstrated to be intentional, it can be done. But as I was pointing out, many of these firearm injuries are unintentional. And because of that, there are a lot of kids going right back into an unsafe environment after those injuries occur, if the injuries were minor.
2: Okay, we're about we're about at the end of the lollipop here. I want to thank you both. This has been an excellent program. I don't know anybody else I've learned a huge amount. Mark is going to take us out. Uh, thank you again, uh, Cindy uh, Downard and David Foley. you you are a great guest, and I'm going to be looking forward to listening to the program right. when I get an opportunity to, because I listen to all of these usually a couple of days after we're done.
5: Gene. Oh, thank you very much. It's just a great program.
4: Thanks. Yeah. Happy to be here.
5: Okay, and I'll add my gratitude. Uh,
1: too often, what I'm reading is just a real buzzkill. With regard to all the money sloshing around in the system, and it's good to have professionals in the in the studio. And it's uh, thank goodness uh, kids here in Louisville have uh, have you guys uh, for their emergency care. Just want to uh, real quickly uh, talk that uh, our mailboxes and airwaves are bombarding us with. Medicare Medicare Advantage ads. Uh, Those mailings and ads don't give us the full story. And you can go to uh, the organization's uh, website. uh, That's uh, kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. You can go to the Facebook and Instagram accounts to get a fuller picture of um, of the Medicare Advantage programs. And Louisville Metro Health and Wellness has a program called the Senior Medicare Patrol to help Medicare beneficiaries, their families and caregivers who have questions about billing issues or if they think they're being scammed. You can call them at 574-6960 574-6960 5746960 or visit the well uh, their website there at uh, Metro government. Uh, again guys, thanks for a great show and um, if you have any ideas for a show or would like to contact our chairperson directly, you can contact KTillo at Nurse NPO at AOL.com, nurse NPO at AOL.com. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening.